If you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to Galatians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use your phone. Uh, and also, since we've had to take our pew Bibles out of the sanctuary, uh, the passage uh, will be on the screen for you when we read it here in just a moment. Uh, but I want to encourage you to open up to Galatians 3 and take a few notes this morning. Uh, God has blessed my wife and I with four amazing daughters. Uh, and if you're newer to our church, you don't know our family very well, you may not know that two of our daughters are adopted. Uh, now, there was a point in time uh, for each of our adopted daughters in, in which a judge declared them to be a part of our family. So legally speaking, there was a point where they were not in the family, and then the judge issued this decisive ruling, and from then on, they are a part of the family, have been a part of the family, 100% Busby. Uh, not Busby's in process. The judge didn't say, you know, if these girls work hard, they might achieve Busbyhood one of these days. They are always Busby's. One day when they get married and their husbands take our name as is proper, they will still be Busby's all the way through. So if anyone were to come to me and say, yeah, but they're not really your daughters. Well, I would tear their arms off and beat them with them. Uh, they are really our daughters. They're not halfway daughters. They're all the way daughters. So do my adopted daughters have to work in order to gain all the rights of a biological daughter? Absolutely not. And should my adopted daughters ever have to question whether or not they belong to the family or whether or not they're truly loved by their parents? Absolutely not. I think we're all on the same page with this. We all have this same understanding about adoption. However, when it comes to spiritual adoption into the family of God, so many of us think lesser and far worse things about what being a part of that family is like. More commonly, one of two errors are made. The first error would be this. It would be that we are truly his children, but we continue to rely on works in illegitimate ways of trying to earn a favor he has already, God has already given us in Jesus Christ. A second error is this, is that we would make an illegitimate claim to be a child of God, and we would use faulty evidence to support that claim. These are the problems that Paul is addressing in his letter to the Galatians. That's the big headline anyways. Uh, once upon a time, Paul goes into this region called Galatia. And there he shared the good news. He told these people a story they'd never heard before. He said there is a God, one God, a creator God. And he loves you. You've sinned against him. You deserve death. But because he loves you and because he's good, he came to us. We knew him as Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he came to us born of a virgin and lived his life in his perfect righteousness and holiness and then died in your place for your sin. Although he was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, he died in your place for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead and he promises that everyone who trusts in him, relies on him, believes in him will be saved, forgiven totally, brought into the family of God. 
And so many of these Galatian people believed that message. Their lives were transformed by believing that message. And then churches sprung up in all these little towns around this region. Well, Paul then had to leave and return back to his home base. And after he left, some opponents of Paul's gospel, known as the Judaizers, they came into these churches and they changed the story. They told these people, you're, no, you're not really full members of God's family. You're not fully his child yet. You need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. And you need to observe these, uh, these historic Jewish traditions. And if you do those things, then one day you might be his child. Who's right? How does one become a child of God? That's the issue at play here in Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. And that's the focus of our time together this morning. My purpose today is not just to answer the question, how does someone become a child of God? But to also show you how incredible and beautiful and amazing is the family that God is making for himself. I want you to follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, You foolish Galatians. Who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the Spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard, just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness? You know then that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. This beautiful passage divides neatly into two sections. The first section, verses 1 through 5, describes for us the conditions for adoption. It answers the how question. How does someone become a child of God? The second section, verses 6 through 9 describes the results of adoption. It helps us see what God's big, beautiful family is like. And so that's where we're going to focus this morning. Let's start first by looking at this first section and think about the conditions for adoption. How is it that someone becomes a child of God and a member of God's family? Well, in verses 1 through 5, Paul machine guns off these rhetorical questions, one right after the other. And although there are six or seven questions, depending on how you count the questions, uh, Paul's really only asking two questions. The first question is this, what is wrong with you people? That's Paul's question. Are you so foolish, Galatians? He's not mad at them. He's frustrated by them that they would take the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ and exchange it for these man-made rules and this horrific mutilation. So he's frustrated by them. He loves them very much. His, his intent is not to insult them, but to get their attention. What's wrong with you people? The second question is this. It's in verse 2. And the question is this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
That's the key question. That's the big thing that Paul's dealing with in this section. He asks that question in a few different ways in verses 1 through 5. But that's the heart of the matter. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Let's make sense of Paul's question first before we answer it. Um, Paul's reference to the Spirit here is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. And he assumes, he takes as fact that the Galatians have indeed received the Holy Spirit. And he's asking them about the means by which they received the Spirit. That's, he gives them two options. Did you receive the Spirit? Because you, you have. Have you received the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel? Now, if you're new to the church, new to Christianity, this phrase, receive the Spirit, may be foreign to you. Uh, so let me explain it. I can explain it, I think, fairly simply. Uh, when Paul says, have you received the Spirit? He is, in essence, asking the Galatians if they have given their lives to God. So in John chapter 14, Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, is talking to his disciples. And he tells them, I'm going to go away. He's, he's going to return to the Father. And he says, but it's good for you that I go away because when I go, then the Helper will come. The Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will live in you. He repeated that promise in Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw what happened when God the Holy Spirit fell on his people. And so the Bible teaches us that at the moment of conversion, at the moment that we say yes to Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. We've talked about this incredible progression before. We'll talk about it more and more. In the Old Testament, God dwells with his people in a holy tent called a tabernacle. He goes where they go. Later in the Old Testament, God dwells with his people in a holy temple. Then in the New Testament, God dwells with his people by taking on flesh. We knew him as Jesus. And now God dwells in his people. God the Holy Spirit in us and with us. He's the God who cannot get close enough to his people. God doesn't exist on some faraway planet or at the top of some holy mountain. He is God in us. At the moment of conversion, every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. It is not necessarily a willful act on your, on your part, meaning you don't say, okay, now I'm ready. You know, Holy Spirit, come in, and then something happens. When you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in. That's what it means to receive the Spirit. So Paul asks the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing and believing? And the answer is clear. They received the Holy Spirit by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. And Paul points to evidence among them that proves that they truly received God the Holy Spirit, that they truly were saved. In verse 5, he points to miracles that they've witnessed. Did these things happen because you observed the law or because you heard and you believed? Well, those miracles happened. And God the Holy Spirit moved in because they heard the gospel and they believed the gospel. They did not receive the Spirit by being circumcised. No work they did paved the way for the Holy Spirit. They heard and believed and the Holy Spirit moved in. So what are the conditions for being a child of God? How does one become a member of God's family? According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, there are two conditions. Hear the gospel 
believe the gospel? How do I become a child of God? What do I have to do? What work do I have to accomplish? What morality do I have to achieve? Sister, hear the gospel, believe the gospel. Brother, hear the gospel, believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves in and you are a child of God. I hope that's good news to your soul because so many of us strive and work to earn a love and a grace that is given freely already to us through Jesus Christ. Here's a question I want to ask. Uh, Paul makes it clear that salvation comes by hearing the gospel, believing the gospel. Uh, He is definitely anti-works of the law, specifically circumcision as a means to salvation. Here's the question. Would Paul be okay if we removed circumcision from the equation, but we inserted some other religious work instead? For example, baptism. Would Paul be okay with us saying, you must hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be baptized in order to be a child of God? This is where the book of Galatians messes with a lot of people. Because it challenges our assumptions that we must work in order to earn God's favor. Or we must work in order to maintain our salvation. This is particularly challenging in our context for people who come from a Catholic background. It is no hidden secret that Catholics and Protestants have very different views on justification. Catholic doctrine uses a phrase that we would all agree with. It it says this, that faith is required for your justification. We agree on that. We agree on the terms anyways. The definition of those terms are very different in the way we use them. So in Catholic doctrine, when an infant is baptized, faith is required for that infant's justification. Since the infant cannot articulate faith... The faith of the church stands in the place of the faith of the infant. And then by being baptized and keeping the sacraments, that child is justified once and for all and held by God. Faith is seen in baptism and keeping the sacraments. So if Paul asks me, if he says, Cody, how did you receive the Spirit? And I reply to Paul, Paul, I was baptized as an infant. And I've kept the sacraments. Then according to Galatians chapter 3 verse 2. I have a problem. And I don't say this because I'm anti-Catholic. I'm not. And I'm not saying this to bash Catholics. Far from it. I have very dear friends who are Catholic. And who are also sincere believers. And the reason we know they are believers. Whether they can articulate it or not. Is because they depart from the church. On the doctrine of justification. They are not saved because they were baptized as an infant and they've kept the sacraments. They are justified. They are saved forever because their faith is in Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel and they believed. It's entirely possible to be a Protestant and yet not be a child of God. Entirely possible to be a Catholic and yet not be a child of God. Because our labels do not grant us entrance into his family. It's faith in Christ that does. And so this is not a challenge just to Catholics, but to every person who would sit with Galatians chapter 3 open in front of them. And to ask, 
Does this reflect my life? Have I embraced this truth? Have I heard the gospel and believed the gospel that I might be a child of God? That's where this good news comes and lifts the burden from us and takes away the fear and gives us assurance of our place in the family of faith. What are the conditions to be adopted into God's family, hear the gospel, and believe the gospel? Once I do that, what's the result? What does it look like once I have heard the gospel, believe the gospel, become a part of God's family. That's what we want to consider next. So in verses 6 through 9, we see a fuller picture of what uh, being a member of God's family looks like. This is Paul, I think, at his most potent in this section. Uh, This is the part of the argument that I think shuts up all of Paul's opponents, the Judaizers. So if the Judaizers were to make an argument, it would sound like this. They could point to Genesis chapter 17. And they could say in Genesis 17, Abraham, our father Abraham, was circumcised and blessed as a result. And if you want to be a child of Abraham, you want to be blessed like Abraham, then you should be circumcised like Abraham. If it's good enough for Abraham, it should be good enough for us. Their bumper sticker said, Abraham did it. I believe it. That settles it. That's true. I'm assuming you're smiling at my cleverness under all of your masks. Well done. Paul says, I'll see your Genesis 17 and I'll raise you at Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham, then Abram. And he says to him, Abram, I'm going to give you more descendants than you can ever imagine. And Abram responded, how can that be since I don't have any children? I want you to look God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, God took Abraham outside and he said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So in verse 6, Genesis 15, verse 6, an uncircumcised Gentile is blessed by God by faith. Do you see that? So Paul says, if you want to be like Abraham, a child of Abraham, blessed like Abraham, believe like Abraham. And therein we find the blessing of God as a part of his family. God's favor didn't come to Abraham because of his externals. God's favor came because he believed, he trusted, he faithed in the word of the Lord. And Paul tells us he did that. God did that as a precursor of the gospel that would go to all nations. All people would be blessed on earth because of Abraham's faith. That same faith would be told over and over again as people are pointed to Jesus Christ. So what's the result of spiritual adoption? Well, you are blessed with Abraham as a full member of God's family. You're not a partial member. You're not a family member in process. You don't have to work for the rights of a full child. They are all given to you when you say yes to God and he has said yes to you. The result of adoption is this relationship is set right between me and God. He is my heavenly father, not a heavenly scoundrel who's waiting to zap me when I mess up, 
but a heavenly father who in love has given everything that I might be his child and a part of his family. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of God's family. And when you become a part of God's family, not only do you have a heavenly father, you suddenly step into a whole mess of siblings, brothers and sisters who are not like you, who do not look like you or have the same background as you, but share the same faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing what faith in Jesus Christ does to our relationships with each other. We used to use our labels before we knew Christ. We used our labels as reasons for division. Ethnic, national, socioeconomic, political, sports, you name it. We used our old labels as a cause for division, as reasons for hate, as justification for war. But as members of God's family, we embrace one another's identities. We embrace one another's labels. We don't force conformity into one box. We look at the diversity of the family of God and we marvel. And together with one voice, we praise God for the family he is making, the family he is putting together. Heaven is not colorblind. In Revelation chapter 5, John looks around the throne of God, surrounded by people he sees from every nation and tribe and people and language. God is making a new people for himself. A people who hold their identities but are marked by their heavenly father as members of his family once and for all. So what does that mean for us in this current cultural moment? Here's what I think the application is. A Christian woman, a white Christian woman in Hingham has more of a kinship with a black Christian man in Minneapolis than she does with her next door non-believing neighbor. Are you with me? So this week we've once again witnessed uh, a violence, an unjust death. George Floyd, man from Minneapolis, uh, killed. His killer has been arrested. And in the days since his death, uh, so many of his friends have spoken about his sincere Christian faith. He wasn't a cultural Christian. According to them, he was a convictional Christian, a cardiac Christian. He was our brother. And so our responses, our words and our actions and our thoughts about his death should reflect our kinship with him rather than our partisanship. Our grief over his death and the injustice around his death does not hinge on him being a Christian. But it is influenced in part, uniquely influenced by the fact that he was a man of faith. Because those who have faith are Abraham's sons and daughters, according to Paul. This was our brother. And so I hope in this week, as you've thought and talked and processed... Your kinship with your brother has dictated your thoughts, your grief, your humility as you enter into that conversation. 
There has to be a way that our kinship with our brothers and sisters informs our engagement with the ills of this world. Do you realize that the people around us outside of the faith are being ripped to shreds daily by expressions of anger and malice all around? And so what then should the church do when the world is at war with itself? Do we just pick sides? Enter the fray, vilify our opponents, act like the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Far from it. It, I mean, if the world does not see in us the radical, self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for all people, then what are we doing here? If they don't find in us a radical, countercultural, blood-bought family, then what's the point? If life is about just being with people who only think the same way you do and then weaponizing against your opponents, you don't need a church for that. You have political parties. Jesus calls us to a better way, laid down his life, went to the cross for rebels like us, not clean sinners with potential, rebels against the cross. He died for us. Does that not show us how to have mercy and forgiveness and to listen to the voices of our brothers and sisters who tell us something's not right, something's got to be different, there has to be a better way. And there is where the church of Jesus Christ crucified steps in with resurrection hope to say we're in this together. We love you. We're brothers and sisters. Maybe our brothers and sisters take the lead and we bring up the rear as in humility we listen and we support and we encourage. There's a better way. Our neighbors need a family. They need a heavenly father. They don't need our political talking points. Repent from your politics and walk in the way of Jesus Christ. That people would hear the gospel and believe the gospel and their lives would be transformed by the Holy Spirit moving in and taking up residence in them. The result of our adoption is a huge, beautiful, diverse, unified family with God as our Heavenly Father. So we've asked this question this morning. How can I know that I'm a child of God? Have you heard the gospel? You've heard it today. Have you believed the gospel? That I don't know. But I invite you, before you leave this space, to give your life to Jesus Christ. To say yes to the one who died in your place and who loves you forever. And when you invite Jesus in, he moves in. God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in you. And you are a part of his forever family. And what a beautiful family it is. God's family is huge and diverse. And it is one. And all of his blessings are yours. And an eternal inheritance is yours. And his name is yours. And all the glory is his. And as members of that one family... Let us link arms in advance with the gospel against the hellish world we live in. Let us search for and find our brothers and sisters. Let us continue in faith like Abraham so that people of every nation, tribe, people, and language will surround the throne of God and join us one day in that eternal hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us, and it is a challenging word. But God, I ask that you would quiet our rebellion, soften our hard hearts, that we would sit with verse 2 and believe your word, that by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, we become your children. 
And then, Lord, show us the way of Jesus to love our neighbors and to be a family, to support our brothers and sisters in all the way they need it. Help us to show this world what it is to be a family of faith and to walk in grace and mercy and love and adoration of our Heavenly Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.